Well, good morning. Good to see everyone here this morning. If you're wondering uh, why I'm up here and maybe why Levi, Pastor Levi, was doing the welcome, no, there, there's no mutiny going on here. Actually, uh, the other pastors uh, had the opportunity to, uh, to uh, d- uh, go on a retreat, kind of a conference with the TCT, the, the Treasuring Christ Together uh, Network, and they uh, did that this past week in Southern California. So they're kind of, uh, they're trickling their way back. Uh, Pastor Levi is here this morning. Pastor Thomas is pretty, uh, pretty much under the weather here this morning, so you can, can pray for him. So uh, uh, as I start, um, you know, it's the first time I've preached up here this morning, and our, our church has grown to a size where not everybody knows everyone. Maybe you don't know who I am. My name is Denny Schneider. I'm, I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Redeemer Church. Um, so I want to maybe just give a quick background of myself and, and how our family has uh, come to be a part of uh, the church body here at CRC. So I uh, kind of started out actually a little bit uh, more than six years ago. I was just reminiscing about it uh, this morning. It's been that long, but I remember my wife uh, Kathy and I, we, we heard uh, rumored that there's this um, uh, church plant uh, residency at, at Bethlehem Baptist by the name of Brett Lewis. And uh, he was thinking about planting out in the, the eastern suburbs of the, of the metropolitan area. Um, and I was excited to meet this, this Pastor Brett uh, uh, and uh, hear more about what... Uh, what he was uh, planning on doing. And so we met, and uh, uh, we really just hit it off, and uh, we are just really excited. I remember saying that, we, where can we sign on the, on the bottom line here? How can we get going? So um, my wife and I uh, agreed to do a kind of a kickoff barbecue of sorts um, to see what uh, interest there may be. Um, that was the summer uh, of, of that, about, again, six years ago. Um, had a lot of interest, and uh, man, how time flies. That's really, really how we got connected here at uh, Christ Redeemer Church. Um, it was just uh, about three years ago now that I was installed as, uh, as an elder here at Christ Redeemer Church, Redeemer Church along with uh, Terry Plath and, and Doug Swenson. Um, you know, and it's really been kind of our, kind of our pathway now to where we are. I'm, I will say that I'm just so happy and, and privileged to, to be a part of this church body. Um, I'm excited about what God has done and even more about uh, the direction that we're headed and, and uh, where he's going to be leading us in the, in the coming years. Um, this church has really been an, a source of encouragement for, encouragement for myself and my family uh, really a, a lot over the last six years. I've grown immensely, um, and it's really just been a blessing, again, to myself and my family. So uh, my family, um, I have... Uh, my wife here this morning, Kathy, my wife of 24 years now. Um, I have five of my six children here. Uh, Allison, my, my oldest daughter, is overseas on a mission trip right now. Um, my daughter, Emily, who is up here uh, with the worship team. And I have four sons, um, Jacob, Joseph, and I have two more, Caleb and Stephen, in the children's devotional time. Um, so, uh, again, just a, a real privilege to be here this morning and a privilege to bring the word to you. Um, I really have come to have a, a new appreciation for the time and effort it takes to put a sermon together. I'm really appreciative for our, our preaching pastors that carry much the load, Pastor Brett and Thomas and, and Levi and others. Um, so uh, when, when Brett originally asked me to, to preach here this morning, we all knew that everyone else was going to be off in Southern California here. Um, you know, he said, you know, just go ahead and fe- preach what you feel the Lord is leading you to. You'd think that would be just, just a great thing, right? Greatest thing since sliced bread. You can just, you know, read from, um, from the Bible and get some text and preach really on whatever you feel the Lord calling you to. Well, I kind of have a personality where, you know, just give me a few good choices and I'll pick one of those. Um, 
but uh, I do feel the, Lord, the Holy Spirit has, has led me to this, to this text here and this message, and I'll trust that uh, uh, the Holy Spirit will uh, make this uh, life-giving to you and uh, uh, that will be beneficial to you. So uh, the text that I'll be, be reading from this morning and preaching on is in uh, Romans chapter 6. <clears throat> so if you want to uh, open with me to Romans chapter 6, I'll be reading uh, from verses 1 through 14. And if you don't have a Bible, I believe we have some Bibles in the, in the back. If you want to raise your hand, we can get one to you. Uh, but before we do that, let me, let me just open us up in prayer here. So Father, we are so grateful that you have uh, chosen to reveal yourself to us in your, your written word. Uh, we know that from your word, the scriptures uh, are living and active, and they're able uh, to discern the thoughts and the intentions of our hearts. Um, so as, as we reread uh, these passages this morning, we hear from you. Um, Lord, I just pray that you will do that in us. Um, would you please reveal uh, your, our thoughts and our intentions to us? Um, I think we sometimes are, are susceptible to feeling like we are uh, able to somehow hide these things and suppress these things from you. Um, but if we're serious about being conformed to your image, uh, Lord, um, we need this. We need you to reveal uh, your, your word to us in our hearts. So, Father, um, we know that if we have put our trust in Jesus, um, that the power of your Spirit is alive in us um, and at work in us, we, we want you to pour out a, a, your Spirit afresh on us this morning. Uh, we just acknowledge that, that without that, Lord, without the power of the Spirit at work in us, uh, that we really are powerless to change. Um, it's only because of what you've done and only because of your Spirit's power that we can, can be changed. So we love you. We love your Word. Um, and we really want to hear from you this morning. So we praise you and bless you. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, again, I'm going to be reading from Romans 6, uh, verses 1 through 14. So let me start in verse 1. So what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who have died to sin uh, still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that uh, the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died for sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives now to God. So you also must consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. 
You know, in the American Revolutionary War, there probably wasn't a, a term that carried with it much more disdain and shame than the word turn, turncoat. Uh, when someone would be referred to as a turncoat, uh, it really meant that he or she uh, betrayed the cause and the people fighting for that cause and turned to the other side. In the war, there, there probably wasn't a name that embodied uh, the meaning of the word turncoat uh, more than an army major general by the name of Benedict Arnold. Uh, most look on his name as one of the, the most infamous traitors uh, in U.S. history. Uh, but what uh, many people don't know is that before he changed his allegiances, uh, Benedict Arnold uh, actually had a number of accomplishments. Um, and he was really considered uh, an early hero uh, of the Revolutionary War. <clears throat> I mean, an interesting uh, tidbit, tidbit about Benedict Arnold uh, is that, uh, that you may not know is that there's actually an unusual statue I don't know if you've heard of that. Uh, to this day, mind you, uh, it's near the, the Saratoga uh, battlefield in New York. Uh, it commemorates uh, Benedict, Armel, Benedict Arnold, uh, but it, uh, it commemorates his leg. Uh, so basically, he was, he was wounded in battle, uh, actually two different battles of the war, and the statue really shows nothing of his body but just his leg. And it doesn't mention, his name by, or his, mention him by name. Uh, so this statue, I think, really, uh, it may reflect a, a certain, to a certain extent the reasoning, I think, in his mind uh, for his defection um, because it's, it's recorded in the history books uh, that much of the reasoning behind his, his decision to defect uh, to the other side was that he felt that uh, he never received um, the recognition that he thought he should deserve or that he deserved. So the story goes on. In, in 1779, he entered into secret negotiations with the British uh, he agreed to turn over the U.S. post at West Point uh, in return for, for money and a, and a command in the, in the British Army. So the plot uh, obviously was eventually discovered by the Americans, uh, but Benedict Arnold um, really he fled and escaped uh, behind British lines, and the rest, as they say, is history. So when Benedict Arnold defected uh, to the British side in May of 1779, you know, his actions really were engraved uh, on the hearts and the minds of Americans as uh, the ultimate traitor, really, as the ultimate turncoat. So, you know, in a sense, we as Christians, um, you know, we are and should be the ultimate turncoats. Um, we should be turncoats in the best sense of the word. Um, you know, it's, it's really that our lives um, have been in sin, and we are bound to sin, and it's really only by the grace of God uh, that we've been able to turn from that and see uh, really who Jesus is uh, and turn from our sinful past and join with Christ. Uh, we have rejected our formal allegiances um, and aligned ourselves with Christ. You know, in Romans 6, uh, Paul lays out an aspect of, of this gospel uh, in proclaiming Jesus' victory uh, over the power of sin in our lives. So he, he proclaims that, uh, the deadness to our old self, and he's proclaiming that, that new life that we have in Christ. You know, he's, he's really laying out the theology behind who we are in Christ uh, and who we can, uh, can be and, and how we should resist sin, um, you know, which is really going to be uh, my first point here. Uh, so let's go back and let's again read in, in verse 1. Uh, Paul asks that rhetorical question. Um, he says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? You know, sometimes you might think about it and say, well, why, why is Paul asking that question? Um, 
you know, there are a number of reasons. It may be uh, that it's just a response to some questions that he had been receiving from some of the believers in the, in the church at Rome. You know, it may have been a result of, of both some confusion uh, surrounding this, this gospel of grace uh, that he had been preaching, as well as I, I think it's maybe a desire on Paul's part uh, to explain how that, that grace, that grace that he had been uh, teaching and preaching about uh, relates to living that, that life of holiness. Um, you remember Paul had written uh, just a few verses before in chapter 5, verse 20. I'll read, Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And I think really he wanted to, to underscore that importance of truly understanding God's grace uh, in light of our sin, um, which he does go into more fully in, in the next few verses. So in verse 2, let me read that. Paul answers his question really, and he proclaims that we as Christians are now dead to sin. He writes, how can we who have died to sin, to sin still live in it? You know, what Paul, I think, is, is getting at here is that being dead to sin is our identity as a, as a believer. Um, he's telling us that if this truth that we are now dead to sin, to sin is not true in the life of a believer, and we, we continue in our sin, being content in our sin, that we really may not be who we say we are. Dead to sin is really uh, how we should define ourselves as followers of, of Jesus Christ. So Paul continues on with this aspect of the gospel and more on our identity uh, of who we are in Christ in the next few verses in verses 3 and 5. So let me read again, uh, starting in verse 3. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism, baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in this newness of life. So Paul, Paul uses that language of a, a new life, a new creation. Uh, he does that in well, as well in 2 Corinthians 5.17 when he writes, If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Um, the old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You know, I, I, can't, I can't help reading that verse uh, and not think of the life of a butterfly. You know, we all, we all know uh, the butterfly starts out as a, as a caterpillar, as a worm-like looking creature, right? Uh, but when it's ready, um, it forms a cocoon. Or rather, you know, in the case of a butterfly, a chrysalis. Probably have some grade school kids that probably would be correcting me right there. So the chrysalis, in the case of a butterfly. So it remains in that state anywhere from a week to a number of months. Uh, it then emerges from that cocoon as this just amazingly new creature, uh, the butterfly. But if you've studied, studied the butterfly at all, uh, you might know, know exactly what happens while it's in that cocoon or that chrysalis. You know, as the caterpillar is in that state, uh, enzymes that are triggered by the caterpillar's hormones are released. And really those are, the, are actually the catalyst for the change that occurs in that butterfly. Uh, sounds rather benign, right? Well, it's described that this happens, that each cell is programmed to self-destruct uh, through the release of those enzymes. Um, these enzymes actually allow the caterpillar to digest itself, so in essence it liquefies itself. Um, you know, this happens just before certain cells that are called sleeper cells. When these sleeper cells awake, uh, they grow into the different parts of the, the future butterfly. So, you know, what, a, what a crazy picture, but what a, just an amazing picture, um, this metaphor of the butterfly. And that really represents us 
um, when we make that 180 degree, 80 degree transformation that occurs when we, when we turn from our sin and we uh, trust Jesus for our salvation. So make no mistake about it, we are a different creature you know, than where we were before we had been transformed by Christ. You know, that's why I think uh, Paul is getting at in here when he describes that, that new creation that we are. Uh, Paul goes on in, in verse 5. Uh, For if we have been united with him in a death like him, we shall certainly be united him in a resurrection like his. So I think, I think Paul wants us to get this. I, wa- I think he wants us to be reassured uh, that if we have turned from our sin and we have trusted in Jesus, uh, that we have been united with him uh, in his death and resurrection. There has been an undeniable transformation, uh, really that, that born-again experience that we talk, talk about. You know, if we have been united with him in his death and resurrection, this is really what happens, this is what occurs. Uh, so we too can now walk in that newness of life. So a lot of imagery here. Um, I love how uh, Paul shows that progression uh, he goes on in, in verse 6 through 11. So let's look at that. He continues to, to paint that picture of who we are now in Christ. Uh, he writes in verse 6, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. You know, Paul says in, in verse 7 that we have been set free from sin. Because of the fact that we have been crucified with Christ and the power of sin has now been broken in our lives. Uh, because of this, again, that's, that's how we have this victory in sin. So Paul goes on really in the, in the next four verses. Uh, he goes on to explain how Jesus has conquered the death and the sin uh, through, through his death and resurrection. And then trusting in him, we have participated in that death and re- resurrection. It's because of this, again, that we have that, that new life. So Paul is confirming, he's reassuring, he's proclaiming uh, what we need to know about the gospel and about our sin. Um, And that is that we no longer need to be enslaved to our sin. We really have been set free from our sin. That is just good news. So one thing thing that I found encouraging in my life, um, and that it's really just looking back and seeing how God has worked in my life to battle my sin, uh, to conform me more and more to his image. Um, now there's been some times where I've had to, to look back a, a little bit longer, much longer periods of my life to find that evidence, um, but, I, but I do find it. Um, so I mentioned at times where, where there, there seems to be that, that little evidence, um, and it's really at those times that I've really had to, to lean in hard uh, to the truth of what, of what Paul is saying here uh, in Scripture. Um, something else that I, I always like to do at, at times, you know, is taking in how the Bible really uh, speaks of this, this before and after story uh, of who we are now in Christ, who we were and then who we are. So let me uh, just quickly read through a number of scripture passages that, that help get at that description. I'll start with the, the old self. So Ephesians 2.1, we are dead in our trespasses and sin. Romans 5.10, we were enemies of God. Luke 15:32 we were lost. Colossians 1:21 we were alienated from God. And then Ephesians 2:3 we were children of wrath. You know, so I think this paints a pretty good picture. This gives us a, a description of who we were before Christ. You know, and then and so what happens then at the at the moment that we step from from death to life? 
you know, how does the, the Bible describe that? So I'll, I'll, I'll take you through a few passages. Uh, there's a lot of them. I could quote a lot of them. I'm just going to take you through a few of my favorite. So Ephesians 2.5, we are alive with Christ. John 15.15, 15, we are friends of God. Ephesians 1.5, we are adopted as sons. John 1.12, we are a child of God. Ephesians 1.4, we are holy and blameless. Colossians 1.14, we are forgiven. Colossians 3.3, we are now hidden with Christ. Philippians 3.20, we are now citizens of heaven. And then as we've read in Romans 6.6, we are no longer slaves to sin. You know, we could go on and on, right? You probably have your own favorites. You know, in Christ, we really have new priorities, right? You know, we are no longer, we're no longer determined to live our lives for ourselves and now are called to, to love others uh, because of what Christ has done. We can love and serve others, albeit not perfectly, right? Uh, because of the love that we have in Christ. Um, we can love because Christ loved us first. You know, we can forgive because Christ forgave us first. You know, we've really been changed. Amen? The Bible also uses uh, clothes, metaphorically, to explain the old and the new. Uh, in Galatians 3, Paul says, As many of you, as were baptized into Christ, have put on Christ. Or as the NIV translated, translates it, we have, been cl- we have clothed ourselves with Christ. The Bible uses this imagery like uh, the removing of the dirty, filthy clothes and the putting on of new clothes. Uh, ones that have no longer been soiled. I think we've all experienced that, uh, the feeling of that um, after a long, hard day of work out in the yard uh, and maybe a, a really hard workout of really wanting to take off our sweaty, dirty clothes, uh, showering, putting on a new set of clothes, maybe right fresh from the dryer. Uh, I, too, have had that personal experience, and I'd like to share this with you because I've actually been, had the privilege of being sprayed by a skunk. Not once, not twice, but actually three times. You wonder how that ever would happen. Well, uh, I won't go into all the, the smelly details of my experiences, but I do want to share one, the, the most memorable one. And it happened when I was, was pheasant hunting uh, down in northwest, northwest part of Iowa on a fall day. And I remember clear as day, I remember walking through the thick grassy field one morning uh, I remember my foot stepping down on something that was, was pretty soft in the thick grass. And with a few, within a few seconds, I remember hearing something uh, like the sound of air being let out of a balloon or maybe something like a whoopee cushion. You know, you can, uh, you, can uh, you know, whatever your mind comes up with, you can picture it. Um, but I remember the, the odor, the smell after that was unmistakably skunk. And it literally almost knocked me over. Um, I remember going home and, and, and dealing with the situation. Um, I'll tell you, there aren't too many times um, that I've smelled uh, the, the stink, the stench as badly as, uh, and strongly as those, those skunk sprayed clothes. Um, you know, talking about taking the, having the desire to take those clothes off, I remember getting back in the vehicle and thinking, that I don't even want to sit on the seat here because uh, I know that potentially this smell could maybe never, never come out. So I'd like to suggest um, that, that this is how we should be looking on our, our old self, our old sinful self. Um, do we treat our sin with that same disdain uh, as we would those skunk sprayed clothes? Uh, do we want to take them off? Do we want to get rid of those stinky clothes? Uh, sometimes I'd say that maybe um, I don't think that we treat our sin that way. 
Sometimes I think that we look on our sins uh, and as clothes that are, are tolerable somehow. That, like maybe a shirt that's been worn a couple times. Kind of like what my sons do sometimes. It's not so bad, right? Uh, now if we truly understand the depths of our sin and how that sin affects God uh, and our relationship with God, we will want to put it to death. You know, we want to strip it off and get rid of those clothes uh, and clothe ourselves with Christ. You know, and this, this leads me to what I, what I believe Paul is, is getting at and emphasizing in, in the last few verses of the text here. So let's go look back at our, our text in Romans. So after verse 11, Paul, Paul kind of shifts a bit here and gives us a call to action on our part. So let me start here reading in verse 12. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life, and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. You know, in these verses, Paul exhorts us to not let sin control us and to present ourselves, our our new selves, our true selves to God as instruments for his righteousness. You know, I think Paul is also acknowledging, uh, to a certain extent, the the conflict uh, that we feel within us. You know, in Galatians 5, 17, he describes this warfare that resides in our hearts. He states, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. So this conflict is the struggle between our old self uh, and the new self. It's the struggle between our new self and the, and the flesh that still remains and resides within us. So the concept of indwelling sin, you've probably heard that before, helps us to understand and, and to clarify uh, what God has done in Christ related to our sin and then, and then what still remains. So let me, let me go into this just for a minute here. When God saves us, we are immediately justified, right? We are declared innocent from all the sin that we have committed and ever will commit in our, in our lifetimes on this earth. We are now looked upon as righteous by our Heavenly Father, and we are now free from the penalty of sin. That's, that's what we call justification. I know that there have been many times in my life where I've questioned why, maybe you have as well, why has God allowed us to continue in our sin? You know, and as a response, my, my response, I've had to really rest uh, in that, the truth uh, according to God's, you know, infinite wisdom and based on his sovereign plan of salvation that he has determined that. You know, that he has been determined that we will not be fully free from our sins and the influence of sin while we remain on this earth. So we are in the state of these competing desires. Uh, as believers, we now have the desire uh, to do what is right and to honor God, right? We feel that. Um, but we also have the desire of the flesh, you know, to remain in our sin. That, that still remains in us. So let me, let, me, let me read here. Let me read an excerpt out of one of uh, Charles Spurgeon's sermons. Uh, he, he has a sermon on, on the topic of indwelling sin and, and really that battling of those, those two natures. So let me read. Now I hold that there is in every Christian two natures, as distinct as were the two natures of the God-man, Christ Jesus. There is one nature which cannot sin because it has been born of God, a spiritual nature coming directly from heaven as pure and as perfect as God himself, who is the author of it. And there is also in man that ancient nature 
which by the fall of Adam has become altogether vile, corrupt, sinful, and devilish. There remains in the heart of of the Christian a nature which cannot do what is right any more than it could before regeneration and which is as evil as it was before the new birth, as sinful, as altogether hostile to God's laws as it ever was. A nature, which I have said before, is curbed and kept under by the new nature in a great measure, but which is not removed and uh, will never be until this tabernacle of our flesh is broken down and we soar into that land in which there shall never enter anything that defiles. So those of you you Spurgeon lovers can appreciate those run-on sentences there, right? Um, But I think what what Spurgeon does is he paints a a picture of the battling of wills, um, which is really a a reality still in our life. Um, Paul explains that that same internal struggle as well in the next chapter of Romans, uh, in Romans 7. So let me read that as well. Familiar verses. Um, in our family, we call it the Dr. Seuss verses. Maybe you can catch that here, maybe from our generation. So I will read from verse 15. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So now it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but the sin that dwells within me. So I think Paul is very open and honest about the struggle that he feels and that we we know all too well. In verse 15, Paul states it right up front, For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. So it almost sounds like Paul is confused here, right? Uh, It sounds like he's questioning what in the world is going on here. Um, It's obvious, though, from everything we know about Paul and everything he has written that he is not confused. You know, I think he probably understood uh, how his flesh affected his life probably more than any of us will probably ever know. Uh, but again, what I, what I think he's doing is being honest here. He gives us a, a dose of the reality that we live in and that we experience in our, in our everyday lives. You know, we live in a world of sin that Jesus Christ has come into and has redeemed, yet he has chosen again in his infinite wisdom to allow us to, to continue in, in a, to live in the world where we, we still continue to battle, battle our sin and our flesh. I think another way of looking at it is to look at what Jesus has done on our behalf um, those that you may have read a systematic theology book or maybe you're in Ron Christensen's uh, systematic theology class, I'm sure you'll learn this, right? This is really how our sin is described, past, present, and future, with, with regards to the, to the work of Christ. So as believers, uh, our past has been justified, meaning that we have been freed from the penalty of sin, again, a justification. Uh, in the present, we are getting free from the power of sin, Uh, We call that progressive sanctification. And then future is when we'll be with him, uh, really free from the presence of sin, and we call that glorification. You know, the time that we're in now has been described by many as living between the already and the not yet, uh, between what God has already accomplished and and what God has not yet done but really promised to do. Um, We have been delivered again from the power of sin, 
Um, but we are still continuing to deal with the effects of sin in our life. And we will until the day that we meet Christ. Uh, when at that time, there will be no longer be sin or even any effects of sin in our life. We will no longer experience sorrow. We will no longer experience pain. We will no longer experience brokenness, fear, death, and every other effect of sin in our lives. But t- until that day, we will just continue to battle that sin. You know, in verse 14, uh, Paul exhorts us. He exhorts us not to not let sin reign in our mortal body, to obey its passions. You know, he goes on in verse 13 to say, Do not present your members to sin as instruments of righteousness, but present to yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments of righteousness. You know, in Romans 8, Paul calls us to put our sinful habits to death. You know, I, I wonder if we just stopped for a moment here and we, if we truly examined ourselves, <clears throat> if we might see some, some unbelief in this area, maybe some laziness in this area of our lives. You know, let me ask this. You know, if you stopped to think of this, would you come up with a reason or a number of reasons, an objection to diligently fighting sin in your life? Um, maybe your response might be something like this. I've only failed at dealing with my habitual sin in the past. You know, I really don't see that I can ever be victorious over it, so why try? You know, or maybe it's something to tune of this. My sin isn't that bad, so do I really need to fight it? That may be you. You might be asking yourself, so why am I not victorious? Why don't I feel victorious in this area of sin in my life at times? You know, how can I present myself to God as an instrument for his righteousness? You know, as Paul tells us. You may be feeling that frustration, that inability um, to, to uh, accomplishing this task in your life. You know, so let's, let's take a minute, if you would, here, just to um, look at the question of why. You know, why are we not victorious in this area in our lives at times? You know, I think the Bible points to a number of reasons. And I think first off, But a lot of times we do not see uh, our sin for what it really is, which is an abomination to the Lord. You know, all throughout the scriptures, it teaches us this, but until that sinks deep into our hearts, uh, we we have a way of minimizing our sin, right? You feel that? It's what we do in the flesh. It's one of Satan's tactics, right? It's to distort the truth of sin. You know, a right understanding of our sin uh, requires an understanding of the satisfaction that we find in God. You might be hearing a little John Piper in that statement, right? Well, if, if, you're, if you are seeing that, you're right. John Piper states, I know of no other way to triumph over sin long term than to gain a distaste for it because of a, a superior satisfaction in God. So it's not only important to see the depths of our sin, um, but to see that sin in light of an all-satisfying God. You know, I think uh, another reason is that we don't deal with our sin. You know, we allow our our sin to fester. Um, Unrepentant or unconfessed sin can build up that barrier between ourselves and God. Um, It can kind of stagnate our our spiritual growth. You know, when we have this sin in our lives, you know, we feel it, right? It hinders us from our relationship with God. It hinders our communication with Him. You know, so you may be asking, well, how how do we deal with that? How do we deal with unconfessed sin, uh, unrepentant sin, we simply confess it, right? 
You know, John says in 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and purify us or cleanse us from all unrighteousness. You know, we confess our sin to God, and I encourage you to confess your sin to another person. You know, especially if that sin affects another person. You know, in doing this, we, we claim uh, this promise that God will cleanse us. He will purify us. Uh, I mean, it'll help break down those barriers that maybe have arisen between us and him. You know, and I think uh, a third reason um, that, I might, that I think that we might struggle with our sin is, is maybe a lack of prayer uh, in our battle against that sin. You know, James says in James chapter 5, verse 16, Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The power of a righteous person has great power as it is working. The prayer of a righteous person. Are we humbling ourselves? You know, are we imploring God to help us with our daily struggle with our sin? You know, Pastor Brett in his, his, cur- his current sermon series has stressed the importance of seeing how truly helpless we are in our own strength. You know, we need the, to petition God, the God of all strength, uh, to help us in this endeavor or we will fail. Um, I think a fourth reason, you know, the fourth reason I believe is if we are not in, in living in true community with others. You know, we are not living in community where others can encourage us and speak into our lives in this area. Um, do, you, do you have someone, do you have a group of people that you're able to confess your sin to and, and pray uh, to encourage you in this battle? If you don't, I encourage you to find someone. You know, if you're involved with a life group, it's a perfect place to start. You know, this is one of the primary purposes that we set up those groups uh, to encourage us in exactly this. But are you allowing others in your life to encourage you to, uh, to, hold, to hold you accountable? You know, God has given us the church. You know, God has given us other believers to help us to accomplish this. Uh, and we are really, we're not alone in this. So I encourage you to bring others alongside you in, the, in this battle. So to close, let's look at a, a final verse here. We'll look at verse 13. Uh, and Paul's encouragement to present ourselves to God as instruments for righteousness. You know, in that statement, there's, there's both an element of, of personal responsibility, so something on our part, and really uh, an element of dependence on God. I think we really need to take that initiative, um, but there's also an admission that we can't accomplish this on our own strength. We need the power of God's grace in our lives. Uh, Charles Spurgeon says, If he gives you the grace to make you believe, he will give you that grace 